invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke 12. We're going to be looking at the final few verses in what has been a hugely, hugely encouraging section. We're going to start reading back in Luke 12, 13. I just want to read that whole section to get the fuller context in front of us. So look at Luke 12, 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Those who do not fear God should say that they are in contrast in this text, in contrast in the life that we see. They are in contrast to Jesus' disciples, Jesus' disciples who do fear God. But for those who do not fear God, they are in the position of the man who, at the beginning of this, intends to use Jesus for his own advantage, to leverage Jesus in this personal matter. They are like the fool in the parable, weighed down by a heart, blinded by selfish greed. As we've been learning, covetousness darkens the heart, makes it ungrateful, stingy, miserly, anxious and weary. Covetousness is really the epitome of self-centeredness, which produces, contrary to expectation, produces loneliness. A covetous heart is a heart that's utterly blinded by pride. And that is the condition of most of the people in this crowd. They're people who do not fear God. Those who do not love him, worship him, they are those who do not follow Christ. But to Jesus' disciples, he turns and speaks some encouraging words. He says, do not be anxious at all about anything. Look at verse 22 and following. Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon on all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, 
which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Listen, that's so much reason for us not to be anxious about anything. For those who fear God, for those who love and worship God, for those who follow Christ in discipleship, God takes such good care of his own, doesn't he? They have nothing whatsoever to worry about, nothing to be anxious about. God sustains his people through the life-giving word. He preserves his people with eternal life. He adorns his people in the beauty of righteousness, perfect righteousness, the spotless righteousness of, of his beloved son. So based on the unshakable, unchanging blessing and favor of God for us, Jesus calls his disciples to trust him, to trust him, to believe that he is speaking a word to them from another world, a world that they have not seen. He's saying, trust me, I know. He's calling his disciples to forsake a, a dying and decaying, decaying world, to set aside all its fleeting, dying pleasures, and instead to seek the only thing that is permanent, the only eternal reality, which is the kingdom of God. Look at verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What a word. What an astounding word. Jesus calls his disciples to seek the Father's kingdom. And by the way, this is exactly what he has been doing. This is exactly how he's been living his life. He is calling us to do and to continue in the work that he has been involved in. That's what he's deployed his apostles and evangelists to do, to proclaim what he's been proclaiming in the towns and the villages of Galilee. And now here in Judea, he's going through all the towns that have been prepared by those evangelists. Jesus has been active. He has been so active. It's exhausting sometimes to read his itinerary. He's just been, been maintaining this, this full, full schedule, preaching the kingdom, demonstrating the power of the kingdom. He's been doing works of compassion, miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons, the power of the kingdom that's been operative in Jesus. It's been opening the eyes of blind people. It's been making the, the lame walk, cleansing lepers, making the deaf hear, raising the dead from their graves, and all of this preaching the gospel. All of it's saturated with gospel hope, gospel truth. In fact, that's what he said from the very beginning of his ministry. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for exactly this purpose, he said, Luke 4, 18, to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. He has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And listen, because this is not only important, important to notice, I want you to hear this. Just as a pattern of Jesus' life and ministry, Hear this because this is the point of our passage today. This is what Jesus is calling us to do here and now as well in seeking the kingdom. With heaven's bounty, 
at his disposal. He is the son of the living God. And so he has everything at his disposal. And so what does Jesus do with it? He seeks the kingdom of God by sharing the kingdom with other people. That's the Messiah's stewardship. He has a stewardship given to him by God, and he is trying to fulfill it. He's taking what God has given him, and he's spreading it to other people. He's sharing it generously, magnanimously. And it is in the exercise of his stewardship by sharing God's infinite bounty with other people, that is its own reward for him. For it is more blessed to give than to receive. Where did Jesus come up with this idea? Well, humanly speaking, he simply read his Bible. He sees God's heart of compassion for people. And how is that not attractive to us? How is that not compelling to us to see how God cares for people and for us to want to be involved in that work? So on a human level, Jesus is just simply mimicking what he's been seeing in God throughout the pages of Scripture in his divine nature. Again, Jesus does what he sees his father doing. John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So whether in his human nature or in his divine nature, he's just doing what the father's doing. Beloved, that's what we're gonna learn about today. How to follow Jesus Christ as he follows the heart of his Father. This is how we, like him, will have a heart for the kingdom of God. How we'll have a heart for kingdom treasure. How we seek, find, and share that treasure with others and how we ourselves, with our lives, invest for eternity. That is, that's really the secret of kingdom economics right there, that the more you give away, the more you keep. It's what Jim Elliott discovered early in his life. It's what he practiced to his dying day, and it's what he sealed with his blood. He, who, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what I want for us. That's what we as elders have been praying for, for us. I'm praying that we'll see this message from Jesus, that we'll understand it, we'll embrace it, that it'll go deep and saturate every fiber of our being, that we'll learn to practice this in life of our own church, to join in Jesus' work, to seek the kingdom of God, to share that kingdom goodness with other people. What else is there to live for? To demonstrate Jesus' compassion, Christ's compassion, God's compassion with others, and then combine that compassion and care by preaching the hope of salvation in Christ. That's what we're after. So I've got only two points for today, and you might think, hey, short sermon. Nope. No, it's not gonna be a short sermon. Two points, my points are long, but this, and the second point has seven subpoints. <laughs> Get your Bibles ready, because we're gonna answer two main questions, and the first question starts with this, that what we wanna ask, what is this kingdom? What, what is this kingdom? I mean, what, what are we supposed to get so worked up over? What are we so, be suppo supposed to be so thrilled with? What is this kingdom anyway? The disciples thought that they knew exactly what Jesus meant when he spoke of the kingdom. We read a little later that Jesus had to correct them about a few particulars, and some of those particulars had major, major implications. Still, 
the disciples did have the basic gist about the nature of the kingdom. We don't. Not many of us, anyway. We don't. We've grown up in this country. It's not a kingdom. We have grown up with a government that's what? Of the people and for the people and by the people. It's a representative democracy, constitutional democracy. So for most of us, the closest kingdom that we know is that benign version across the pond, right? The kingdom of Great Britain. And it's a constitutional monarchy. So we really only know what we've seen on TV or what we've read in the tabloid papers or whatever. We don't know much about what a true kingdom is about. And even the the constitutional monarchy of Great Britain, they've defanged all the power of the monarchy. So there's just not a whole lot of power there. It's mitigated by a written document. But there are six absolute monarchies left on the earth. Monarch has an absolute sovereign authority and power, ruled by a king or a sultan. Brunei, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Eswatini, that's the new name of Swaziland, Africa, and then also, believe it or not, is on the list, the Vatican. The Vatican is a monarchy ruled by the Pope. There's just something wrong about that, isn't there? Just on the face of it. Since very few of us have lived in such places or even traveled to them, it's safe to assume that the concept of a kingdom is still pretty foreign to us as Americans. The disciples, though, they, they understood some of this. Not only the concept of a kingdom was familiar to them, but the idea of the specific kingdom that Jesus was preaching, that Jesus commanded to them to go and preach. They knew it. Jesus, after all, commissioned the 12 to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal, Luke 9, 2. He sent in the next chapter, Luke 10, he sent the 72 to heal the sick and to say, the kingdom of God has come near you. So what did they preach if they're preaching the kingdom of God? Well, the phrase, the kingdom of God, it refers to a monarchy where God is the absolute sovereign authority. He is the one who has power over life and death. He's the one who sits on the throne. So in terms that we can understand of a constitutional democracy, God is all three branches of government, legislative, judicial, executive. God is the government, lawgiver, judge, and executor of righteousness. Israel is the only nation on earth that God chose to rule, that God chose for the nation where his name would reside, God chose as the nation where his glory would be manifest in and through that nation. So Israel, as God's chosen nation, was there to administrate his sovereign rule on the earth, to convey through it its blessing and glory and spread it around the earth. So properly speaking, we need to see that Israel's monarchy is actually a theocracy, since God is the absolute sovereign. He is the lawgiver. He's the judge. He's the executioner. The judges of Israel, then later the kings of Israel, those offices of Israel's government were administrative in nature. They were God's agents to administrate and to enforce his justice and righteousness in the land. Now, we're not going to have time to review in Israel's entire history this morning, but it's enough for our purposes just to say that this Israel had in its history some agents who were better at this and some agents who were worse at this. In fact, some agents who were downright wicked. 
in their administration of justice and righteousness. They did not, you know, for a large part, Israel did not administrate God's kingdom on earth well. We can just leave it there. Not one of them was a perfect representative. Not one of them was a perfect king, perfect administrator. Israel's monarchy was never a perfect theocracy of God. It was never an exact manifestation of the kingdom of God. In fact, it fell far short. Nation of Israel, as we've seen on the pages of Scripture, it went the way of all nations. It often paralleled and at times even outdid the idolatry of the pagan nations and the immorality as well. Paul put it this way, Romans 2.24, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What an indictment. So God eventually judged Israel for its sins, its idolatry, its acts of gross immorality, but also for its rebellion against the superior light of revelation that they had received as a nation. Even though after this, God sent the nation into exile, God was gracious all the way through. He sent prophets along the way to encourage and strengthen the faithful remnant. In the larger population, to call them all to repentance so they would throw themselves in the dust, repent of their sins. They didn't do that. So the prophets were there for another purpose, and that was really the purpose of strengthening and encouraging the faithful remnant. Before, during, after Israel's expulsion from the land and its exile into Babylon, God sent word through the prophets that restoration is coming. So the faithful remnant, they heard were those words of hope, and so, so needed those words of hope. Things looked so, so dark all around them, and yet, because of God's promise, they had hope. Hope is proclaimed as, as good news to them. And that good news was coming in the form of a Messiah. Promised son of David, this one who would make the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Israel one. Same message for us, by the way. It's no different. In our darkest hour, whenever that darkest hour comes, whenever the bottom is the bottom for us, there's still hope in the Messiah. In fact, I want you to turn back for a moment to Isaiah 52, and just want to take a brief look at some of this so you can get an idea of what the disciples are thinking as they're hearing Jesus talk about seeking the kingdom. Those of you who've been keeping up with the daily Bible reading, you may find this familiar as we've recently finished Isaiah. Starting in Isaiah 52, we're going to read a little bit here. Isaiah 52, 1, this promise of restoration a promise of deliverance and salvation for Israel. And you need to understand the disciples of Jesus listening to him this day, they took this literally, they understood this literally. Isaiah 52, 1, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, Jerusalem, holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taking away, taken away for nothing? 
Their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The fulfillment of these restoration promises and many like this, along with the administration of this restored kingdom would rest on the strong, capable shoulders of the Messiah. That's what it says in Isaiah 9, 6. We say that every Christmas time, right? The government will rest upon his shoulders. It's this Messiah that God speaks of in verse, look at verse 13, behold, my servant, he's expressing confidence, he's rejoicing in the Messiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. In fact, as you look down the page there and let your eyes scan the verses that follow, you realize we're entering into territory that we know, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. The Messiah's kingdom mission begins with the king dying for his citizens I mean, who's heard of that? A monarch dying for his people. This is not typically how the story goes. But the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, he comes to secure the allegiance of his people with the unbreakable bond of love. He's come to secure permanent forgiveness for them by taking upon himself the due suffering for their sins. Though Israel failed to administer God's righteousness, they themselves were unrighteous from the heart. They're guilty before God. But the Messiah's sacrifice removed their guilt. His obedience secured their perfect righteousness before God. They're standing before God. It's the greatest gift a king could ever give his citizens. I'd love to read the whole chapter, but just look at Isaiah 53 at the end of it, verse 11. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall, be, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, the king, he takes upon himself the penalty that they deserved. He absorbs the wrath of God, the sovereign, the absolute sovereign authority and power Lawgiver, judge, and executioner, he absorbs that wrath and then he secures their righteousness so that that very self-same sovereign can declare this people righteous in his sight, justified, not simply forgiven, declared righteous. It's a positive element there. Just for a moment, can you imagine America being the target of this promise? Current population nearing 330 million. 
every single citizen counted righteous before God in our country, sin forgiven, righteousness fulfilled in the work of Christ for us, consciences clear, no longer defiled by sin and dead evil works, hearts regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We have new natures, 330 million people, new natures, new affections. We possess a love for truth, a love for righteousness. Every person has a love for his neighbor. Every heart in union of gratitude and joy, neighbor to neighbor, rejoicing in the salvation of the Lord, communing with God through Christ, fellowshipping together in worship and praise. I mean, block parties like you've never seen. Got the picture? Hard to imagine that, isn't it? In today, today's environment? I know it's hard to imagine, but try to imagine that now as a reality through the entire earth. Every single nation of the world. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Starts with an earthly kingdom, a kingdom that's governed by the Messiah on earth, and then it culminates in the fulfilled promise of a new heavens and a new earth, 2 Peter 3.13, in which righteousness dwells all over the earth. So you're still in Isaiah, just flip ahead a couple chapters, a few pages over to Isaiah 60. Again, we're just going to read a little bit here. We're going to look at two stages in this coming kingdom. This is what the disciples, they thought they saw it all of a piece, all one thing, one kingdom. We understand it as two stages, but look at what they understood when Jesus spoke of the kingdom. First, it was an earthly kingdom. Look at Isaiah 60, starting in verse 1. Arise. Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has arisen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip, and you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be, shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, young camels of Midian and Ephah. Those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you, the rams of Nebaoth, and shall minister to you. They shall come with acceptance to my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope in me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, their kings shall minister to you, for in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, night and day they shall not be shut, that my people, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. God's going to judge nations that don't conform to his plan to exalt Israel, whose nations shall be utterly laid waste. 
Verse 13, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you've been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall, you shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make, you over, make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. What a picture. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. What an earthly kingdom. Imagine that around the whole earth. Neighbor to neighbor, county to county, state to state, throughout the nation, nation to nation, this. This is the earthly kingdom and the Messiah when Christ returns to reign and rule from David's throne in the city of Jerusalem. We call this kingdom the millennial kingdom because it lasts for a literal millennium, a thousand years according to Revelation 20. Satan will be bound up in chains, cast into the abyss, a bottomless pit. The destroyer will be destroyed, the dominator dominated. Christ reigning, it'll be a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity. Look at Isaiah 65, just a few pages over. Verse 19 and following. It says, I will, something very similar, I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall bring houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build in another inhabit. They shall not plant in another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the... Be the, shall the days of my people be? My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I'll hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. All of those verses, and there are more we could read, but all those verses are about the earthly millennial kingdom. That's what Jesus' disciples have in mind. You gotta imagine they're thrilled. Here he is, here's the kingdom, here's the Messiah, the king himself. Just briefly, there's more to this. Back up and notice, and this is, this is what they're seeing too. Verses 17 and 18, same chapter here. Isaiah 65, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. There's language back up to chapter 60 we just read from. 
verse 19, there's language of an eternal kingdom in Isaiah 60, 19 as well. It says there that the sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord, Yahweh, shall be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning shall be ended. Those passages are fulfilled in particular in Revelation 21 and 22. As the kingdom of God comes into its final form, an eternal kingdom, a new heavens, a new earth, all lit by the eternal glory of God. Jesus' disciples, they knew these passages from Isaiah. In fact, in dark times of Roman oppression, in times when their nation seems to be tearing itself apart, where even terrorists are rising up from different parts of their land to try to assassinate leaders and, and bring about the kingdom, this is what they fed themselves with. This is what the disciples hoped in. This is what the disciples held on to. They look forward with hopeful, joyful anticipation. Ever since John the Baptist came on the land, very different from what they've been hearing for the past couple hundred years, John the Baptist comes and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he spoke like no one else had been speaking for a long, long time. He started to sound a lot like their prophets written in scripture. And then comes Jesus. He comes through their town, through Capernaum, calling them to discipleship. Their, their hearts are pounding now with excitement and joy to be a part of this. They didn't recognize like we do there'd be a gap in the program between the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom. Uh, a gap, you know, a separation between those. They didn't understand there would be a gap between then, their time, and the kingdom coming, the second advent of Christ. You realize that God intended Christ to come twice, a first advent for the forgiveness of sins, to deal with the deep heart work of the people, to fulfill all righteousness, to secure justification for its kingdom citizens, and then to have a second advent of Christ to consummate all the promises of restoration and all the promises of kingdom fulfillment. We understand that because we have the whole written word before us. We're in a privileged position. They only started to realize the, the breadth of God's redemptive program when they came together after the resurrection. Remember Acts 1-6? They're all gathered together. Jesus has been crucified, buried. Oh, all hope is lost. It's all gone. All of a sudden, resurrection. Their hearts are filled with joy. They see him. They walk with him. Just before his ascension, the apostles filled with anticipation and joy asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? All right, are we, we getting going with this? And he answered, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They're like, oh yeah, those promises. Okay, forgot about the Holy Spirit and his involvement. Didn't even, didn't even see that coming. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Hmm. 
Righteousness covering the earth is gonna start with a proclamation of righteousness to the earth. In answer to the disciples' question, at this time, is now the time you're gonna restore everything? Jesus says, not yet, not yet. Let's leave the timing to the Father and let's you and me, let's us work on seeking the kingdom of God. And since it's been your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, there is a kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Let's seek that together. Let's keep on living for the kingdom. Let's keep working for its fulfillment. Listen, the apostles, these early disciples of Christ, for them, this must have, it must have seemed to them like a postponement of the fulfillment of kingdom's promises. But listen, it was not that. This is all happening according to plan. After Jesus helped them reorient their minds to God's program, to his sovereign purposes for the church and the church age, that they would be privileged to see the advent and the growth of a body of Christ, Jew, Gentile, together, slave and free together, male, female together, equal citizens of the kingdom, man, they are all in. That's the record of the book of Acts. They're like, we get, to do, we get to do this. This is our role. And once the Holy Spirit came, filled them and dwelt them, empowered them to serve Jesus Christ, they got it. They got it. Didn't diminish their joy one bit to be wait for the millennial kingdom. Now nah, their joy deepened. Their vision of God's program expanded, broadened, because they're seeing in Christ and in his work, they're seeing the very wisdom of God manifest before them in the glory of Christ on display in the church. They're overjoyed to be counted worthy to be a part of this. Beloved, what about you? I mean, up until the world shuddered at the stoppage that was caused by a tiny little thing like COVID, all the panicked reaction to COVID. We don't scoff at that, by the way. I'm not scoffing. The uncertainty of all of this has affected us too. But up until then, can you admit to be, having been a little bit distracted by the world? Just a little bit? A little bit caught up in what's going on around you? A little bit caught up in earthly pursuits? Do you look back and you ever wonder like, man, I used to, really watch a lot of NFL and NBA. Who cares about that anymore? I mean, seriously, sports figures, entertainment people, they have nothing to say to us at this time, at all. Every time they try to insert themselves into the situation, we're like, why are you still talking like as if anybody cares? Can we confess that we Maybe we're too preoccupied, far too preoccupied in, by this world, by its agenda, by what it counts as important. Beloved, you gotta understand, this is our opportunity right here. This is our opportunity. Christ stopped everything in the world so we could think about this more carefully. So we can get our heads screwed on straight, our hearts rightly aligned get back in the game, and rejoice at the opportunity that we have before us to seek this kingdom in our own day, in our own time, our own place. We've got work to do. In joyful obedience to Christ, we have a kingdom to seek. And so with that in mind, let's ask a second question for this morning. This is part two here. 
What does seeking the kingdom look like? What does seeking the kingdom look like? What is the right response to receiving God's precious gift of a kingdom? What demonstrates that you no longer fear, no longer worry, are no longer anxious, but that your priorities are now set by eternal realities? Look at verses 33, 34. Jesus says, here's what it looks like. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. (laughs) Folks, where is your treasure? Where's your treasure located? Where do you bank? What is the security of what's most valuable to you? Listen, if it's located anywhere on the face of this planet, if it is oriented to all the fading and fleeting life of this world, then you have invested poorly. James says in James 5, 1 to 3, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Foolish to do that. Bad investment to put all your time, all your energy, all your efforts into amassing wealth here. You need to get your resources out while you still can. Withdraw from this world. See this time and energy and resources that you have as a stewardship and then reinvest the talents that your master gave to you to, into kingdom ventures. Notice first in that section, back in Luke 12, I need to get there, Luke 12, 33, 34. Notice first what Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us what to do. He tells us what actions to take, practically speaking. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. And we're going to clarify the meaning of that in just a, just a moment for us. So he tells us what to do, what actions to take. Secondly, Jesus tells us the significance of our actions. We're investing in the future. We're investing in invisible, unseen realities, but make no mistake, because they're invisible and unseen, that they don't matter. They matter so much more consequentially than anything visible, anything physical, anything temporal. We're tucking away an infinite, unfailing treasure. We're storing the riches of heaven in imperishable wallets and indestructible purses, which can never be stolen, which can never wear out. No one can hack this bank. Then third, Jesus tells us what our actions reveal about our hearts. Namely, that our hearts are in the right place. Rather than being estranged from God like those still enslaved to covetous desires, when we treasure the kingdom that God has already given us, listen, our hearts are aligned to worship God, to find all joy, satisfaction, and rest in him. So let's put all that together in a little list here, okay? These verses, just assess ourselves and see whether or not we're seeking the kingdom. See how we're doing at this. We're going to start with that first sentence in verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. We need to clarify that. 
what it meant for the disciples then and what it means for us now. We're going to do that by highlighting some principles here for them, first of all, to apply to our lives. Ready to write? Here we go. Number one, first, first principle, be diligent, work hard, and build wealth. First principle, be diligent, work hard, and build wealth. And you're looking down at the verse and you're saying, in light of what Jesus says here, build wealth? Yes, absolutely. Be diligent, work hard, and build wealth. Notice when Jesus says, sell possessions, what does that imply? You have possessions to sell. Make no mistake, Jesus' disciples had possessions. That's how they funded the ministry. The apostles had a shared purse, carefully managed by the trustworthy, ever-frugal Judas Iscariot. He kept track of the money. Even after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Christians in the early church, in the early church they had possessions too. They clearly didn't interpret what Jesus said here with a communist hermeneutic or with a mendicant, which is a beggarly, vow of poverty hermeneutic. It's not how they thought. Turn over, let me show you this in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, remember, while you're turning there, that Jesus called these disciples to deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow him, and that is exactly what they did. They left everything quite literally left everything to follow Jesus. And they went where he went. They slept where he slept. They put everything on the line to follow him. It's Frederick Godet who put this well. He said, quote, if they had remained attached to the soil of their earthly property, they would have been incapable of following and serving him without looking backward. The essential character of such a precept alone, he's speaking about sell your possessions, give to the poor. The essential character of such a precept alone is permanent, the form in which Jesus presented it arose from the present condition of the kingdom of God. The mode of fulfilling it varies. End quote. In other words, we need to, in our interpreting scripture at times, we need to boil down the command to its principal form and use wisdom to see how that principle applies for us in our own time and in our own situation. There are times when obedience to this command requires us to sell everything and give. And other times, the same command requires us to hold down a job and earn a living and save money and fund kingdom purposes. So when Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy, he is not here advocating some kind of Francis of Assisi vow of poverty. It's not support of a communist denial of personal property where all goods and property belong to the collective and it's doled out by higher-ups in the state. It's what I appreciate so much in Luke's body of writing where he gives us volume one, the gospel of Jesus, and volume two, the Acts of the Apostles because we get to see how the early church applied Jesus' words, Jesus' teaching. Look at Acts 2, starting in verse 41. So those who received his word, Peter's word, Peter's gospel, they were baptized. And they were added to that, that day about 3,000 souls. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were, toge were together and had all things in common." 
That's where the communists stop reading. But keep reading, verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's where the Franciscans and the monastic beggars stop reading. And keep reading. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Where were they breaking bread again? Hmm. In there, well, that's a possessive pronoun, calls attention to the fact of, you guessed it, possession. In their homes, they still had homes. They still had possessions. Listen, these are diligent, hardworking people who built wealth, had stuff to share. And we can read about this all over the New Testament. Just as an example, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. You can write that down, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. He's, Paul says, we urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly. Or make it your ambition, in other words, to live quietly to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. There is no justification biblically, there is no justification whatsoever for Christians taking vows of poverty, for Christians living like the rest of their, living the rest of their lives on handouts, feeding like a leech from hard work of other people, that is not godly. That is not piety. It's not biblical. We all need to be diligent, find ways to work hard, and to build wealth. Jesus' disciples had already applied the command, sell your possessions. They applied it quite literally because that was what the moment demanded. If they didn't, they would not have been able to follow his circuitous route to Jerusalem. Other Christians in the New Testament, most of them, in fact, they're called to hold down jobs, be diligent, work hard, build wealth, and then share it. How else do we fund gospel ministry? How else do we train competent preachers of the word of God? How else do we deploy well-trained pastors, well-trained missionaries to build churches? If God's people divest themselves of everything, you do that one time, and then you're begging. So instead of taking Jesus' words in some strictly wooden, literal fashion, which is really to do violence to the intent here, we need to see Jesus' words complemented and applied in what Paul said to the Corinthians. Just write down 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 31. 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 31. Paul says there that the appointed time has grown very short. And by the way, just a little bit of historical background in this time in Corinth, when Paul is writing to Corinth, there's a crisis of pretty significant proportions. There'd been a famine and social crisis swept through. I mean, when people are starving, they start pointing fingers, don't they? They start getting angry. They start saying, someone's got to do something about this. Riots were going on in Corinth. Christians are starting to wonder I mean, should we even marry, be given in marriage? Should we even commit our daughters to marriage to other people? Should we, should we stop carrying on conjugal relations between husband and wife? I mean, Christ is coming. 
Look, it's the end times. This world is tearing itself apart. So Paul says the appointed time, it has grown very short. You need to think about that way. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. And you might think he's saying he's jumping on the crisis train. He's not. Because at the very beginning of the chapter, he's saying, look, stop denying yourselves, husband and wife. Give yourselves to conjugal relations. Enjoy your marriages. Don't give the devil an opportunity to tempt you. No, here's, here's who should marry. Here's who should not. If there's a virgin daughter of yours that wants to be married, and two of them, young couple, want to get married. I know the times are tough. Let them get married. You've not sinned. Look, there's a balance there, isn't there? But the world is passing away, make no mistake. In Corinth and in Greeley, it's passing away, along with its desires, 1 John 2, 17. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So much more to say about this. We got six more points to cover. So <laughs> be diligent, work hard, and with the wealth that you earn, just insert a practical matter here because it's assumed in the, in the text here. Just a practical matter. Second, be responsible and care for your family. Be responsible and care for your family. Listen, before you give alms to the needy, before you're concerned about the poor, make sure you've taken care of your responsibilities at home. Paul tell, tells young pastor Timothy to care for widows. First Timothy 5, they're the most vulnerable members of any society, especially in the first century. Harsh world. Paul tells Timothy there about caring for widows, and it's not just pull out all the stops and just pour money on them. He says this, before they're added to the widow's list, before they're made a charge of the church, do this. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Then verse eight, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So just squeezing the point just slightly here, before you look outside of your home, be responsible in your home. Third point, be compassionate. Be compassionate and look to meet needs. Be compassionate and when I say look to meet needs, I mean be on the lookout. Make that a preoccupation of yours to say, hmm, who can I give to? Where are the needs? Who can I care for? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the heart of your Father in heaven. Luke 6, 36, be merciful. Even as your Father is merciful. We're to put on Colossians 3, 12 as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We're to put on compassionate hearts. A heart of kindness that looks out for those in need. That's the instinct of love itself. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we, we ought to lay down our lives for others, for the brothers, it says. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk. A lot of talk going around. 
Let us love instead in deed and in truth. Paul says, Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He tells us to prioritize our compassion in verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to, the, to those who are of the household of faith. Prioritize your compassion. Prefer those who are in the household of faith in your generosity, your giving, your care for the poor. Paul, Paul modeled that for all the churches and all of his ministry. In fact, he reminds the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, 35, he says, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the, Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's the way Jesus lived. It's the way Paul lived. Paul wanted the Ephesian elders, all pastors under his influence, to model and to teach the same thing in all the churches. He told the pastor Titus, teach compassion, help people look for needs that they can meet. Titus 3.14, let our people learn to devote. It's not something you just have by instinct, right? You gotta learn it. You gotta be discipled in this. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, to help cases in urgent need and not to be unfruitful. So listen, be looking for it. As they say, see a need, meet a need. So be diligent, be responsible, be compassionate. Point number four, be generous and share your stuff. Be generous and share your stuff. I'd say even more, not just share, but give your money. Give it away with no strings attached. Give. John the Baptist, when he taught the crowds to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, they asked him for some practical application. He immediately had it. He said, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. And there should be no need in the body of Christ. Be generous, share, give. Theme shows up in the law and the prophets again and again. Share with the needy, share with foreigners, share with orphans and widows. Moses said, Deuteronomy 24, 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. Just leave it there. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So don't try to be squeezing everything out. Just let the poor gather and glean the field. David said the wicked borrows but does not pay back. A lot of wickedness going on in our country, isn't there? A lot of people borrowing and never repaying. Psalm 37, 21. But the righteous, the righteous is generous and gives. Solomon likewise. Proverbs 3, 27 to 28, he says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Stingy. Give. You see a need? Don't tell your neighbor to come back tomorrow and let your covetous heart work you over and tighten up. So from the law, from the prophets, from the Psalms, from the wisdom literature, here in the Gospels, the theme of generosity shows up again and again, repeatedly. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Be diligent, be responsible, be compassionate, and then be generous. Be generous. Paul summarizes kind of all this, these four points. And in one verse, in Ephesians 4.28, when he's teaching repentance to the thief, 
How do you know when a thief is no longer a thief? How do you know when a thief is truly repentant and he's, he's recovered? Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. When is a thief no longer a thief? Is it when he gets a job? No. When, he's, when has he worked through repentance to its very conclusion? Is it when he stops stealing? No. Is it when he gets a job? No. Is it when he's working hard and laboring and appreciating his job? No, no, and no. A thief is no longer a thief. He's repented from his thievery when he converts his heart of covetousness to a heart of generosity. When he's working because he's driven by a generous heart that wants to earn and provide, save up, and then share with others. That's when a thief is no longer a thief. So be diligent, responsible, compassionate, generous. It's just the first sentence in verse 33. Let's look at the second sentence in verse 33, also verse 34. We'll find several more principles for application here. Number five, fifth thing, be wise and invest for the long term. Be wise and invest for the long term. Verse 33 says, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus says later, Luke 16, 9, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Same principle that we've read before, 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Listen, they're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And then connecting with our text, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's been said before, you can never outgive God. Trust him in this. Invest your money, your goods, wealth, right now. You can anticipate God outgiving your investment. A, a heavenly rate of return in ways far beyond what you can ask or imagine. Just want to insert a brief but very important word here. The, the wrong way to apply this text would be to go home this afternoon and go sell that extra piece of furniture, couch, whatever it is, take that money in hand and go to the homeless guy standing on the corner and hand it to him. That would be unwise, not wise. That would be bad stewardship, a bad investment, and not the proper execution of a good and wise stewardship. Listen, when we're diligent and hardworking and when God blesses our work and allows us to build wealth, what are we to do with it? We just squander it on an emotional impulse? We to give thoughtlessly with no investigation, no follow-up, go to some homeless person holding a sign? I mean, beloved, we all feel, I feel that, don't you? I, we all feel that when we drive by, feel the tug at the heartstrings, don't we? Especially when they get the kids involved. Don't be fooled by appearances. Don't be deceived by their cleverness, and they are very, very clever. Ask anyone in law enforcement in this church, anyone in law enforcement at all, 
They'll set you straight on the con job that's going on out there. But you're actually funding when you give money in their, put money in their hands. You think God is pleased when you give his money that he gave you and invest it into funding a drug habit or drunkenness or some kind of abuse? What does Paul tell the rich, those with wealth? 1 Timothy 6.18, they're to do good. They're to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The exercise of a good and wise stewardship is to thoughtfully evaluate the opportunity that is in front of you, to investigate it, to fund what God calls good. Jesus said in Luke 16, 11, if you've not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Listen, faithful giving requires wisdom. Wisdom requires not impulsiveness, but thoughtfulness. Wisdom requires you to slow down, evaluate the opportunity. I can say without fear of contradiction here, in the context of seeking the kingdom, Jesus, he's preparing his disciples for future ministry. They can't see that right now, but it's a ministry that is gonna go on long after his ascension into heaven. Here we are 2,000 years later, right? So when Jesus says, sell, give, invest, he doesn't intend for us to go fund the homeless population of our cities. All his good works, miracles, feeding, healing, his ministry, the ministry of his apostles, the ministry of the 72, the ministry of all the churches of the New Testament, all the way up to us, all his compassion, practical care, physical needs, was accompanied by the message of the gospel. It's accompanied by preaching accompanied by the proclamation of the kingdom of God. So let me just say to you, if you have some extra money and you don't have some personal knowledge of a need, some well-investigated opportunity that you can follow up on, someone who has a need, meet a practical need, or someone who's suffering physically, listen, the elders have plans for ministry in and through this church. You heard last week at our members meeting, and I was so glad not to be really involved in any of that. But everything that the elders said, you can hear wise, careful, considered, thoughtful stewardship. We need your help. We need your heart for the ministry. We need your investment in ministry. We've, we have community opportunities. Reaching out with compassion and counsel to those in need. We wanna open up more. We're training people for counseling, for helping people with compassion and thoughtful, careful counsel from the word of God, we want to open that up. We know of churches who are struggling with finances, who could use a little seed money to encourage them and help them. We're, we're right there with financial counsel and wisdom to evaluate opportunities for them, but we can't pay for all of it. We need to train called men to be competent in handling the word of God because there are so many untrained and incompetent people peddling the word of God. So we need to train men. We need to send these men into pastorates, send them to other places as well. They're local, regional, international opportunities that we want to be involved in. All that requires funding. These opportunities are just waiting for Christians to wake up from slumber, stop supporting bad stuff, bad ministries. Stop squandering resources and invest in building the kingdom to give to trustworthy causes that the elders have investigated and support and encourage. You may not be able to go, but you can help send, right? Let's do that together. Let's do that together. So be diligent, responsible, compassionate, generous, wise. 
Here's a sixth point, and we're wrapping up here. Sixth, number six, be content and let your heart rest. Six, be content and let your heart rest. When all of your treasure, everything you count valuable, is wrapped up in the safest, most secure bank in the entire universe, <laughs> where no thief approaches, can't get near, where no moth destroys, you can sleep at night, can't you? You're unencumbered by any of the anxieties that, that afflict those who are rich in this present world. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if your heart is in heaven, your heart is at rest. Provide for yourselves with money bags that don't grow old. The treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Be diligent, responsible, compassionate, generous, wise, content. Finally, seventh, be grateful and let your heart rejoice. Be grateful, let your heart rejoice. You've been granted a kingdom here, all right? Rejoice a little already. It's decreed for you by God from before the foundation of the world. Listen, this is as secure as it gets. You have unfailing treasure in the heavens, safeguarded by holy angels, attentive cherubim, fiery seraphim are at hand. They are always under the watchful eye of an all-seeing, all-knowing God. God is all-wise, which means what you invest in his kingdom doesn't just sit there. <laughs> it accrues to your benefit. God accelerates your interests. He drives up your dividends. Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, give, it'll be given to you. How will it be given? Just in the same way I gave it? No, good measure, pressed down, shaken together so there's no space left in the, the pressed down grain that he gives you, running over, that'll be poured out into your lap. Or with the measure you use, it'll be measured right back to you. God has given you an infinite share of eternal treasure, and he gives you the privilege of starting right now. Right now. Enjoying the stewardship of that treasure. Your dividends are gonna pay off. They're gonna last throughout all of eternity. They're never gonna grow old, never lose their shine, never lose the value of the interest, never be hacked by hackers. So be grateful. Give your attention to the treasure laid up in heaven. Instead of looking, instead of rifling through catalogs online for stuff you want to buy, instead of browsing through travel brochures and places online you want to travel to, visit on this decaying planet. Use your time instead, not to stir up a heart of discontent. Use your, heart, use your time instead to search scripture. Learn more about your reward. Fill your heart with anticipation and joy about this future, this glorious future that awaits you. You have a kingdom and all of its treasure besides. We have, as Peter says, an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. So beloved, let's act like it. <laughs> let's start investing with glad and grateful hearts. Amen. Father, thank you so much for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to tell us what we could not see on our own to help us to see what only his eyes can see. We follow him, we trust him, we trust you, Father. When you tell us that you've given us a kingdom, we believe you. But Father, there are some times when we 
are weak in our believing and we don't act like those who are rich beyond imagination. So we pray that you would help us to, to live like we are the possessors of a kingdom, like you have been eternally gracious to us, and let us live the rest of the, our lives here on earth seeking the kingdom, seeking your righteousness, knowing that all these things will be added to us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.